You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Nine weeks ago, we started with creation. Uh, God made all things in, in perfection, and even in that, we rebelled. So God began the process of, of pursuing us to redeem us so that he could save us, so that he could keep us. And then God began to relate to us through, through covenants. The first covenant we saw was the Adamic covenant. As God says, there will be consequences to your sin, but I will send somebody who will destroy the enemy. Then we had the Noahic covenant where God said, I will never again to destroy the earth. I will make that promise to never again destroy the earth so that I can redeem people who live on the earth. That was a part of the Noahic covenant. Then we come to the Abrahamic covenant where God gives a promise to his chosen people, a promise of land, a promise of blessing, a promise of descendants. Then we came to the Mosaic law where God began to deal with us through the law so that we could be protected in that blessing but we struggled to, to even keep the law. Then we had the Davidic covenant that an eternal king would come and would come through that lineage, through the line of, of David, the king. And then finally, Jesus comes. Long expected Jesus. Uh, Jesus is one we've been waiting for, the fulfillment of 414 Old Testament prophecies. He dies this cruel death on a cross, but then by God's power, he's raised again three days later in an earth-shaking, literally earth-shaking resurrection. So there's 3,600 years of redemption history in about two minutes. And if a human was writing this story, the movie credits would start rolling about this time. I mean, it really feels like the story is complete. There was a longing for the hero. The hero comes, the hero is killed, but the hero is raised back to life. And so if this was a, a movie, the credits would start rolling and, and, the, and the audience would get up and walk out and say, man, that was a great story. And that was so powerful. Now just let's go back to our own lives. But Highland, no. The story's not over. After the resurrection, God's spirit will come and will live in us and empower us to live on, to, on mission and continue on the ministry of Christ. Christianity is not a closed story. Amen. Note takers, you can write this down. This is what today is all about. The story of Christ continues in the people of Christ who were empowered by the Holy Spirit to live on holy mission. The story is not over. In fact, I would say after the resurrection, really the story is just beginning because now the story of Jesus continues on in you, the people of Jesus, who are now empowered by the Holy Spirit to live on a holy mission for God's glory. That's the story of Acts, really, right there. That's the story of the New Testament for every daughter and son of God who is here today, every Christian who is here watching today online. This is our story also, and the story is not finished. In fact, the ark of redemption as well is still arcing Acts chapter 1 let's go there together it's the fifth book in the New Testament Matthew, Mark, Luke, John and Acts in fact the, 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 the real name of the book you probably know is the Acts of the Apostles 
Let's see now what God's people, empowered by the Holy Spirit, supplied by the Holy Spirit, are now capable of doing as they carry on the holy mission of the continuation of the ministry of Christ. So we're in Acts chapter 1. I encourage you to open up your Bible there or find your smartphone and your device. Get to Acts chapter 1. This is where we'll be in the book of Acts the entirety of this morning. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, the continuation of my story in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's get a little context here. Luke is a physician. He's a Gentile. He is a, he's a writer who has an eye for, for detail. This is the same guy who is writing the gospel of Luke. Therefore, we see that reference in chapter 1, verse 1 in the first book. He is speaking of his gospel, that he wrote the gospel of Luke. In fact, you can book in and put it right together, uh, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and they really just flow like one continuous narrative. Uh, he is writing probably at the behest of, of Theophilus. You see that in verse 1. Oh, Theophilus. Theophilus probably is an official, someone who is interested in the story of Jesus, someone perhaps who wanted a written account of the story of Jesus. And so Luke says the same thing back in, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1, verse 3. He references Theophilus. So Theophilus may be someone of wealth, maybe someone of great influence, but he is curious. He wants to have a written account of, of Jesus. What do we gain, if you will, church, from verse 1 through verse 11 of Acts chapter 1? Here, here's what I think we can gain. The first church burned with a passion for Jesus. Oh, they longed for his purposes. They longed for the gospel to be taken, the, the, the fame of, of God, the renown of Christ to be taken all around the world. The first church burned with a passion for Jesus. Why? Number one, he was risen from the dead. That has a way of starting a church. When someone comes back from the dead, look at verse 3 with me, Acts chapter 1, verse 3. He presented, speaking of Jesus, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering, after the cross, after his death, by many proofs. You know, a proven resurrection, Highland, changes everything. The church was alive because Jesus was alive. The first church burned with a, holy, with a passion, a hot passion for Jesus. Why? He was risen from the dead. Secondly, he was exalted to heaven. A look at verse 2. It says in verse 2, he was taken up. We see it in verse 9, he was lifted 
up. We saw in verse 11, this Jesus who is taken up from you to heaven. And if you want to, we did not read it, but I have to go one page over. Maybe you do also verse 22 of chapter one, speaking of Jesus, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us four times. In this chapter alone, Luke emphasizes that Jesus is not only the risen Savior, but he's also the exalted Lord. He has ascended to heaven and is at the right hand of God, giving grace to his people. In fact, even this morning, this same Christ is giving grace to us. And this was huge for the first church. Because they were about to face very difficult times. They are about to face fierce persecution. It'd be very comforting for this first century church to know that Jesus was on his throne. In fact, let's just be honest, that's good for us to know. When we go through times of of confusion or things are not going um, our way, it is good for us to know that Jesus is the exalted Lord, that he is seated even right now in a place of sovereign control. Thirdly, why was the first church burning with a passion for Jesus? Because he is coming again. Look at verse 10 of of chapter 1. We'll unpack this a little bit. While they were gazing into heaven. So here's Jesus talking. All of a sudden, he, he just, he's lifted up. We saw verse 10. And they were gazing into heaven as he went. And behold, two men stood by them in white robes, certainly angels. And, and they said, men of Galilee, why are you just standing here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he's going to come back in the same way just as you saw him go into heaven. The, the, the church wanted to be faithful knowing that Jesus would come again. That stirred a fire in them for, for his name. It stirred a fire, to, fire in them for, for his gospel. Christ will return. Now just look at the screen. All three of those things I hope are still up there because all three of those things are still true right now. He is risen from the dead. He is exalted to heaven. He is coming again. Therefore, we should also be a church. We should be a people who burn with a passion for Jesus. Verse one. So interesting. Don't miss this word. I bet you did. In the first book, speaking of the gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, someone who wanted to have a written account of Jesus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began. Do you see it in verse 1? All that Jesus began. Why did Luke not put right there all that Jesus did? All that Jesus began. You ready? Because Jesus isn't finished yet. With his purpose or his mission. It continues with us. You can write this down also or just consider this incredible opportunity that we have. Christian, we now press the ark of redemption forward by proclaiming ourselves and living ourselves this good news, this gospel. You see, it's been handed to us. Like, where do we fit inside of the ark of redemption? We saw all the things the Old Testament saying that we tried so hard, but we could not. Then Jesus comes, his, his, his coming, his death, his resurrection, they're not the pinnacle point of the ark of redemption. But now that's been handed to us. Christian, we are now responsible for pressing forward this ark of redemption. What is the ark of redemption? Jesus pursues sinners. He saves sinners. He keeps his people. The baton, if I can use an Olympic illustration, has been handed to us. I've got a long, long list of things to ask Jesus when I get to heaven. One of them is going to be, why did you hand us the baton? Don't you know us? 
we're faithless people. We're fickle. I mean, we're, we're so self-absorbed. You're going to hand us the baton to carry on your ministry, Jesus? Jesus, you were doing so well. I mean, you just, you just beat death. Keep running. I mean, just keep going. Don't, don't hand us the baton. Can you imagine last night the Olympic committee calling you up and say, hey, we've got this four by 400 relay, the men's and the women's. Our anchor leg's not feeling really well right now. Would you run it for us, please? I would say, Mr. Olympic Committee man, <laughs> I have seen them run. They run like gazelles. Did you see that last night? Our, the, those, the ladies, I was like, there was no one else on the track with them. They run like gazelles. I, I don't run like a gazelle. I, there's other animals I run like, but gazelle is not one of them. You want me to run the anchor leg? Have you seen me run before? Do you know how old I am? Do you think I'm capable of, of, of keeping up? That, that baton would be handed to me, and all I could say is I barely made it across the finish line, maybe was we were winning until you handed it to me. We were ahead until you handed it to me. I feel the same way even today as I look at this passage. Jesus, you were winning. Everything was going so well. You had conquered death, and then you handed people like us the baton. We were winning. <laughs> but this is exactly what Christ has done for his church. I hope you feel the weight of this and the beauty of this. That Christ has handed you the baton to carry on his ministry. His ministry. How? By proclaiming and living this good news to, to others. How in the world would we have the power? We are slow people on so many levels, slow people. How in the world are we able to carry a baton like that? It feels weighty. It feels impossible. Acts chapter two, verse one. Stay with me. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed, they were astonished, saying, are, are not all these who are speaking Galileans, which is another word maybe for simpletons? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? We have Parthians and, and Medes and Elamites and, and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of, of Libya that's belonging to Cyrene and even visitors from Rome, but both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Cretans, Cretans. Those are like LSU fans, like just off the, off the charts. Cretans and Arabians, we, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed, perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Others were saying they're drunk. 
They're filled with new wine. The Holy Spirit comes. And there's so much spiritual fanfare. Wind and fire have always signaled the presence of God throughout the scripture. Which kind of begs the question, why is there no wind in here right now? Why are there no really cool flames above all of our heads right now? Ready for the answer? Because the Spirit has already come and he has not left. There's no place in the New Testament where we see this prayer, Holy Spirit, come. Why? Because he's already here. Christian, he is within you. So what is our aim now if if the Holy Spirit has never left And as followers of Christ, the Holy Spirit now is within us. What is our aim? What is our goal as the people of God? You ready for this word? Obedience. For that is the life in which the Holy Spirit dwells in full measure. So what does the Holy Spirit then do for us? What the Holy Spirit does for us and and in us, we see from this passage right here, here's the first thing, allows us to experience God's permanent presence. See, this is the, 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 the beautiful joy of the Holy Spirit living within every life of every believer. Because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was coming and going. Sometimes there, sometimes not there. But now in this new covenant, he is always within us Christians permanently. So that we are always in the presence of God. Here in Acts chapter 2, we just read it. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell, not just among God's people, but in God's people. The Holy Spirit comes to to continually allow us to experience the presence of God. The Holy Spirit fills us up to show us the beauty and the power of Christ in us. What does the Holy Spirit do for us? What does the Holy Spirit do in us? Secondly, he empowers us to obey God completely. Remember the whole story of the Old Testament was we could not obey God completely. We could try We would fail, we would try again, maybe we could even try a little bit harder, but we could not obey God completely. Let me give you a little context. This is a very smart congregation. I'm sure all of you are fully aware of this. This is Pentecost, right? We just saw that in in chapter two when the day of Pentecost arrived. Pentecost was 50 days after Passover. You know when the first Pentecost was? It's actually back in Exodus chapter 19. 50 days in Exodus chapter 19, also after Passover, Pentecost, and Pentecost was the coming down of the law. It was the, the giving of, of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 19, Exodus chapter 20. Did you remember what, what happens as, as the law comes down on that Pentecost day, if you will, of the Old Testament of Exodus chapter 19, those Ten Commandments were given and we could not obey them. Fire also came, wind also came, and the people were terrified in the first Pentecost, and 3,000 people died in judgment. But now the Holy Spirit has come, and guess what? We can now obey God because the power of God inside of us. And isn't it interesting in verse 3 that that same fire from God sits comfortably now on top of his people? And remember that number 3,000 for later. Thirdly, what the Holy Spirit does for us and in us. He guides us to fulfill God's worldwide purpose. This is where the baton comes in. This is what Jesus has given to us. His purpose is for the nations. That's why it says in in verse five, every nation under heaven was there to hear this gospel. Then it begins to list. I won't read it again. Verses seven through verse 11 of chapter two, all those nations, all those languages, all those people groups, all those tribes. And the followers were speaking in, in different languages. Those who were filled by the Holy Spirit were, were speaking in different languages that they normally did not speak. 
And I think this is vitally important for us to all know. Look at your Bible again, chapter 2, verse 11, kind of the second part of verse 11. I'll start in verse 11 again. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues. Number one, it was a known and recognizable language that they were speaking. It was not gibberish. It was not unintelligible. They were understood. They were able to speak a known language to communicate the good news to those who were there in Jerusalem, a very international city, to hear the good news in their own language. But I think the second thing is just as important. It was for the glory of God. They were speaking. Do you see that in verse 11? They were speaking of the mighty works of of God. They were not saying, look at me, listen to me, watch my ministry, watch my church, see me on TV. They're saying, no, I want you to see and to hear the mighty works of God. What is the mighty work of God? The resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the mightiest of all works of God. Let's pick it up. Acts chapter two, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed him. Let me call a quick time out here in verse 14. This is the same Peter. (laughs) that denied Christ earlier. This is the same Peter that just weeks before had said, I don't know who that guy is. But this is post-Pentecost Peter. I like post-Pentecost Peter so much more than pre-Pentecost Peter. Because now he stands up with this boldness. He stands up with this clarity. He stands up in the power of the Holy Spirit And he addresses them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. And there's a great sermon, verses 14 through verse 40, that I won't read to you right now for sake of time, but if you're looking for some homework this week, read that sermon. This is amazing. It's the first sermon after the resurrection given to others. It's powerful. It is a great future preachers out there. This is a great outline to make sure you include in every one of your sermons the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and then call people to Jesus. That's what's happening. Let's pick it up uh, at the very end of the sermon, verse 36. But there's your homework. Verse 36, Peter's wrapping up this sermon. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, turn from your your sin, turn from your sinful lifestyle and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, including Waco, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. There's God pursuing, there's God saving, there's God keeping, verse 40, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. Here's our number from Exodus 19. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's a good day for a church plant. I mean, Acts chapter 1, we didn't read this, but back in verse 15 of Acts chapter 1, so there were 120 Christians, believers, followers of Christ that were gathered in that upper room. By the time you get to the end of just Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people were saved. For those doing the the math, that's a 2,500% increase. And just for simplicity of, of numbers, 
we'll probably have 1,300 people at Highland here today. That same increase would mean that this evening, 32,500 Wacoans would be lined up to be baptized tonight. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the power of someone who is boldly proclaiming and living the gospel and living on, 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 on mission. This is a movement. And this has been the story of the church from the very beginning. Historians will say that Christianity grew by 40% every decade for the first 300 years after the resurrection of Christ. And it starts with 120 fired up, spirit-filled believers. By the year 350 AD, there's about 33 million Christians on the planet. There's only 200 million people on the planet in total at that point. It's the fire of the gospel. From its inception, the church was a movement that literally changed the world. And we're a part of it. Highland, 2,000 years later in Highland, we are a part of it. We're not just some building to see or some place to sit on Sunday morning. We're in a movement based upon a resurrected Christ and empowered in us by the Holy Spirit. So here then is our priorities, is our wrap-up today. Our priorities that are fueled by the Holy Spirit. And we see all of these in Acts. If you want to know, okay, preacher guy, what do I need to do with this sermon? Here we go. One, speak boldly. I mean, Peter, he was a failure. He, he could not keep words in his mouth. He was one of those speak guys and think later. I probably just covered about 30% of this congregation, right, by saying that. But he spoke boldly about Jesus, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. What if even, even, even this week, much less the weeks ahead, what if just this week we spoke boldly to others, certainly who Jesus is, but people can wrestle with you all day about that. What they can't wrestle with you on is this, what Jesus has done for your life, what he's done in you what he has done for you. I just think if we spoke as boldly of Jesus as we do about our positions on vaccinations, we would have 32,000 Wacoans lined up for baptism this evening. What are you speaking boldly about? I would say as your shepherd, but sometimes who loves to put on a little prophet hat, I would wonder if the past year or so we have spoke boldly about the wrong things. Speak boldly about who Jesus is. More than that, what he has done for us. Secondly, here's what the church was doing. They were fueled by the Holy Spirit. They cared. They were caring sacrificially. That's what I would say to all of us. Let us care sacrificially. That those percentages of growth that I gave you, 40% growth every 10 years for 300 years, why was that? Christianity grew because Christians visibly, tangibly, sacrificially cared for others. Who? The poor the sick and the outcast. You can go back to extra biblical renderings of historians who were shocked at the way that Christians took care of the sick and the hungry. That was the fuel for a growing church. Care sacrificially. Here's the third thing, give generously. Uh, we can read it in Acts chapter 2. You can read it all throughout the book of Acts. These were people who were selling their possessions. They were selling their land. They were selling their things to give financially to the growing church. They gave so generously. You know who that reminds me of? You. You. 
Highland, you're the most generous church I know of. The most generous church I've been a part of. Back in the spring, we raised $181,000 to help eliminate $34 million of medical debt for families here in our state. And we got our first email this week from a lady, a single mom, who said, I had three medical bills that I could not pay. And I got a letter this week in the mail that said, Highland had paid for all of my medical debt. Her words, her words, praise God that he paid this for me. That spark of a, of a lady emailing saying my debt has been forgiven, that spark started with the generosity of your hearts. God does great things when his people are generous. Here's the, here's the fourth thing, worship wholeheartedly. I mean, this first generation uh, uh, Christians, they, they were committed to worship. They were committed to pray. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 47, if your Bible happens to be open, it just said that they were, they were gathering to praise God. They were praising God. Remember Paul and Silas, just a few pages over, they were in prison for preaching the gospel. And what did they do? They sang. They worshiped God in the middle of, of prison. Worship wholeheartedly. I would imagine that very few of them Oh, I'm about to get some emails on this. Very few of them brought in their coffee and kind of sipped and watched others sing. John Dash Durham at HBC Waco. I'll give you a head start. I bet very few of them just sat there with their hands in their pocket and thought, well, when's the singing portion going to be over? When's the worship going to be over? I mean, they worshiped with all of their hearts. Pray faithfully. This church, they prayed and they believed. This first church, they, they prayed and thousands were saved. They prayed and prison doors blew open, literally. They, they prayed and the sick were healed. They prayed and churches were planted. They devoted themselves to prayer. And lastly, let me land on this and call us to something on this. Surrender daily. I think this was the heart of our spiritual forefathers. This is our heritage, Christian. They constantly were saying, Jesus, this is all for you. This is about you. This is about your name, not my name. This is your mission, not my mission. This is your agenda. And they just surrendered daily to the purposes of God on earth. They surrendered themselves daily the mission of Christ and that baton that Jesus had handed them. So here comes the calling. To every teacher here today, every educator, coach, professor, could I ask you to surrender this year to the Lord? Could I ask you to surrender every student that you'll have to the Lord? Can I ask for you to surrender your words to the Lord this year? For every student, from pre-K to grad student, could I call you to surrender this coming year? That you, you would lay down anything that might be your agenda and pick up the agenda of Christ? Could I ask you to surrender 
classes and your calendar to him. Business women, businessmen, can I ask you at this, really at this very time, would you surrender your business plans to him? Would you surrender this coming year? Would you surrender to him the fears that you have about finances? Would you sort of surrender all of your coworkers or maybe employers, employees to the Lord? Could I ask every dad and every mom to surrender your children to the Lord today? Could I ask every blue-collar worker to surrender your, your skill, your trade, your integrity, the work of your hand, and just say, God, this is all yours. Every retired woman and man, every unemployed person here today, could I just ask you to surrender your days to him? What I'm asking is, are we willing to surrender to the mission of Christ in us? Are we willing to surrender to his call? Are we willing to surrender to take that baton and the power of the Holy Spirit and this week proclaim and live the truth of the gospel? We're going to sing a song in a few moments. If you grew up in church, I know you know it. I surrender all. And can I just challenge this church to sing or maybe even to say those words to the Lord in this song. Maybe your arms need to be outstretched or maybe you need to be on the floor. It's a very uncomfortable gym floor. My hope even this morning was that every one of these altars would be filled today during this song of teachers and students and businesswomen and businessmen and blue-collar workers and moms and dads declaring with sincerity and authenticity, I just surrender. Would you stand with me, please, and let's pray together. Father, we want to burn with a passion for Jesus and his purposes. You have handed us a baton and then you gave us the spirit so we could actually do it. God, we surrender. That we want to just follow the pattern of our spiritual forefathers in that very first century church that just spoke so boldly. They gave so generously. They cared so sacrificially. God, they just, they, they worshiped wholeheartedly. And daily they just surrendered. God, may we be known as a surrendering people. We sing this song as an anthem of our hearts today. On our knees, with arms outstretched, through tears, we surrender it all to you.